Hey folks, before we get started, I wanted to tell you about the Consumer VC Summit. The Consumer VC Summit is a three-day virtual event that is focused on e-commerce, retail, and innovation. This is all happening February 23rd through 25th, 2021. Mark Nathan and I have really poured our souls into it. During the day is a mix of talks and panel discussions with some incredible founders and investors that focus on these sectors. In the evenings, we're going to be throwing networking events, and if you're a founder, you'll also have access to mentoring sessions, which means you'll meet three investors or industry professionals for feedback about your business. All of our talks and panels will also be available for replay with a ticket. Please check out summit.theconsumervc.com and enter ConsumerVC for a 20% discount. This is also located in the show notes. We look forward to seeing you there. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. Over the holidays, we're going to be releasing highlights from past episodes from this year every morning of Hanukkah and each day during the 12 days of Christmas. If you're a founder or investor and looking to meet more folks in the ecosystem, each week I host a networking event on my Upstream channel. The link is in the show notes to join on mobile. Looking forward to seeing you there. I'm excited to share highlights from my conversation with Sasha Astafayeva, partner at Atomico. Atomico invests in Europe's most ambitious tech founders at Series A and beyond. Some of their investments include FarmDrop, Habito, and Tea Time Games. Sasha leads new investments in consumer. Without further ado, here's Sasha. In terms of on the operator side, we've had operators that started in focus scaling American businesses that are based in the U.S. We'd love to just learn about what it's like to 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 grow and scale a business in Brazil. It's wild, wild west. <laughs> uh, first of all, no, honestly, and I, I, you know, I still think of that as sort of the highlight of kind of my my working experiences. So, you know, firstly, Brazil is a was and is a very interesting market. Uh, it's obviously you know a huge huge market with a big number of people, and many of them, you know are kind of coming out through up to the middle class. And that creates very interesting consumer trends. And, and real estate is an area which, you know, in markets like the US or Europe, you know, we've seen the journeys of, of these businesses and we sort of know what playbooks are. Uh, and Brazil was very early in that, in that journey. So when I joined the business, I also, again, got extremely lucky. And, and we can talk about that story because I think it's a really interesting story of entrepreneurship as well, looking at the founders who started that company and how they went about it. But it was about 50 people, which wasn't a lot for that type of business because it was very sales driven. So, you know, you had sales offices around the country and each one of them had salespeople. So if you thought about it, it wasn't like a huge number of people. I was there for three years and when I left, it was 500 people. And I can tell you that, you know, being on that sort of 10X in terms of employees journey, where we did also three rounds of funding during that time, raising both from local investors, but also from the US investors and, and changing playbooks and changing our strategy and, and hiring people and trying to maintain our culture and growing very quickly. All of those things were just amazing lessons, but they were harder to do as well because they were in a more nascent market. And so you learn a lot more. You also learn to be much more flexible, I think. And 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 the other thing is, which I think is also interesting, is that because you're operating in a different culture, and I think that's sort of what you were also referring to, you have to be mindful of that culture, not only in terms of the product that you're building, but also in terms of the, the team that you're building and the, what 
drives different people to come to work. So just as a very small example, you know, I found that Brazilians, for example, felt more strongly about work environments. They became very close friends. You know, everyone that I worked with added me as a friend on Facebook. You know, I think that you typically don't add your boss on Facebook, maybe, in a, you know, if you work in, in, in definitely not if you work in London, then not anymore. But for them, it was a very personal experience. And that's something that I had to learn. It wasn't just about, you know, how do you, um, what kind of business do you build? What kind of product do you build? But also how do you treat your coworkers? How do they see you and how do you uh, construct? your team culture that all of that was i think colored by by me being in a different culture in a different geography talk a little bit about your, about your transition i know you came into venture capital and you moved to london and you started working at felix and now you work at atomico talk to me a little bit about how you're thinking about the european landscape when it comes to like startup ecosystems and what makes you really excited about it, it it's interesting i think europe you know is uh, historically was thought potentially less exciting as a startup landscape than than the us but i think that's really changing and and we see that both in terms of you know the kind of the record levels of funding that we've seen into startups in europe but also that the fact that you know 20 european countries have produced at least one unicorn which is which to me is like a sign that the there are environments that are being created in europe europe now for creating really exciting big companies which is basically providing capital access to talent and, and just general sort of belief in the ability of people to build big companies and desire to fund them. You know, you have more developers in Europe than in the U.S., which is a, which is a, you know, a great start. And I think we're also seeing that there is more and more excitement about European tech ecosystem from venture funds outside of Europe as well, which again is, I think, a sign of the maturing ecosystem. Um, we see many rounds where both U.S. investors but also Asian investors are participating as well. And and, and I'm personally very excited about the opportunities to build very, very big companies that will come out of Europe. I think we're more and more living in a world which, you know, has, especially with the current effects that we're seeing from COVID, of, you know, people also building companies remotely and, and just maybe borders somewhat disappearing when we think about where ideas can come from. But I think that also means that the European tech ecosystem will, will become even more interesting because there are definitely, there's definitely great talent that can build companies here. And now that there's also more capital, I think that combined just leads to more opportunity in Europe. I'd actually love to dive in as well about talent. I had on um, Charles Hudson, who's an American investor uh, based in Silicon Valley. And we started talking a little bit about like secondary and tertiary markets. Now he thinks about investing in secondary and tertiary markets. Um, this is, of course, in the U.S. But I'd love to I love the the European take, if that's all right on this on, on, on this question. He how he thinks about it is and, and these are, of course, referring to venture backable businesses. It's OK to start out in a secondary market looking at the U.S. landscape. However, there has to be a plan of action for him uh, to become interested or intrigued. Um, to move or at least have a have a location in the Bay Area or on the coasts or or in a major city that uh, because uh, due to talent and as you scale you're going to be a want to be around like for example like the best software engineers and in terms of hiring how do you think when you think about Europe and of course Europe is very very different to America it's 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 it, it, it's a lot of different countries but how do you think about investing in secondary and companies that are located in, in, uh, in secondary and tertiary markets. You know, this is quite interesting because I think actually there is probably an answer to this question that would have definitely been right, you know, a year ago. And then there's an answer that is probably right now. And then we don't know what the right answer will be, you know, a year from now. And I think 
you know, the fact that all of us are now sort of sitting in our living rooms or bedrooms and working and working as effectively as we used to work when being in an office, I think has, you know, made us wake up to the fact that, you know, we can, the ta- talent can be located anywhere. And so from the point of view, where does the idea and where does the business originate? One of the things that, are, you know, about sort of tertiary uh, or secondary markets, I suppose, is that because of a kind of Sometimes I would I would I would also guess you know the ecosystem maybe being a little bit more overlooked. The founders have had to sort of build up their businesses without capital to for a while, and that makes them more resilient. So actually, there you know many I think of the European companies that have come that have come out in in the last sort of few years, they have originated in some of these potentially overlooked geographies. But in terms of talent. Um, I think with what we're seeing now, having a location in one of the big cities will probably become less relevant. It already w- was happening before, you know, a good example of that. Many of the companies, for example, would set up offices in Spain, right? Particularly where a lot of the development talent would be located for a variety of reasons. You know, the cost of living is more affordable, the weather is better, um, and uh, and their immigration uh, requirements were less sort of stringent than in some of the other markets. So was Spain sort of a hotbed for entrepreneurship? You know, not necessarily at the beginning, but it became, uh, you know, a bigger hub for where people chose to locate their development teams, for example. And I think that's also, uh, it's, it's, again, it was, it's a sign of the times of that time, what the world looks like now when all of us are working in different locations and what that would mean going forward is a big question mark for me. I think one thing about Europe in particular is that I think the the diversity that we have in Europe by nature of just all of the different countries sort of located here, different languages being spoken is, is something that is a true asset to this part of the world because no matter where you start your business as a European company, you're always thinking international because you're always thinking about that next European market you're going into. And I think that's an amazing, uh, it's an amazing asset to have for any business, regardless of whether it starts, you know, in London or if it starts in Tallinn. How do you think about international expansion in Europe? Because you, you, it seems like in terms of consumer behavior, it can actually vary quite a bit between countries. No, that's a great question. And I think actually, you know, a lot of the businesses that we see today, especially consumer facing ones, you know, they, they're acute aware of that because it's less about you know if you're a b2b business expanding internationally it can always just mean you know establishing a sales team and establishing relationships it doesn't always mean you know changing your product for example or changing your marketing message but for consumer facing startups i think it often does you do have to ask yourself a question about the customer that you're going after and if that customer is different culturally different it does sometimes mean that you'll have to adapt a lot more um, and but the one thing about Europe, I think, is because because of that, most of the entrepreneurs that start businesses in Europe, they think about those challenges and of international expansions from day one. So it's kind of hardwired into their behavior, into their brain. And the same goes for kind of diversity because they're already thinking about their different customers from day one as well. And and I think that, you know, again, there can be challenges with that because it's not easy. But if you're able to overcome those challenges, that's potentially, you know, another barrier to entry, which allows you to build something defensible against your competitors. You know, when something is hard and you're able to tackle that, 
that's an advantage that you're creating for yourself. We see this a lot as well with some of the businesses, the way that they do branding as well. You know, they have to think about kind of how, whether they're appealing only to their local user base or if they're appealing to user base across different geographies. You know, again, this question doesn't come up as a secondary question for European founders. That's the first question that should be coming up in their head. And because they know that from day one, they need to think about international expansion just because of the size of the markets, individual markets that they're going after. So what are some like consumer trends or, or, or consumer behavior that you're right now very focused on in the European market? Yeah, it's quite interesting because also I think the you know, COVID has changed everything, but something that a trend that started at some point, but it has accelerated tremendously is just everything moving digital. Um, and people must have talked about it as well. So I will not be, you know, someone that says sort of anything new here. But I think that one of the cool things that we're seeing is, um, you know, if historically, uh, you know, my mother didn't know how to use a phone. Now she does. And that's, that's amazing. And she's not going back. I mean, uh, maybe not my mother, maybe someone else's mother, because my mother lives in Ukraine. But you you get the gist. They, you know, the way we're getting food, the way we're communicating, the way we're working, just the way that even we do employee activism. I mean, there are startups that are merging for basically any single part of our lives today that have a digital component to them. And I think that's that's the trend, but it's not going away. Um, the other one is which we looked at and before, but I think it's becoming even more interesting is digital health in general, but also mental health and femtech. I'm particularly excited about femtech, pretty nascent area, but again, seeing how uh, healthcare in general today is overwhelmed with other concerns, uh, we're seeing more and more people taking their own healthcare into their own hands, both from the preventative side, but also thinking about kind of just any aspect of health um, and just saying, you know, how do I basically take care of my own wellness? Femtech is interesting because it's so nascent and there is so little information and women are, you know, are hungry to learn more. They're also responsible for majority of decision-making at home, which has to do with health, health, with healthcare. They are responsible for majority of consumer spending decisions anyway. And they're basically hungry to have products and services that are addressed to, to them, for, to their sort of uh, health needs. So Femtech is super, super interesting. Again, early days, but we're you know meeting and talking to a lot of companies in the space. Something we've looked at before and something that I think is still also quite interesting to see that market being resilient is personal care and beauty. I think it's just you know the traditional kind of lipstick effect, which is you know when times are tough. Again, this is maybe a very female thing to say, but you buy lipstick and you feel better. But also in general, again, this idea of just taking care of yourself and uh, and you know feeling better because of both personal care and beauty and then finally the other thing which is I'm we're starting to look at again and this is one of the markets that has been hit by by covid for sure but I, I'm quite interested in markets that have consumer journeys being broken and subpar, and that's prop tech. Uh, part of it is, of course, you know, my previous experience as an operator and being in the uh, in the real estate space, but also, you know, having been in the sort of uh, a, a participant in the prop tech market uh, as a consumer in, uh, you know, in the UK, I can say that with confidence that it's one of the worst consumer experiences and 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 it's fascinating given it's one of the biggest consumer spending categories that the user journey is still so uh, so broken so i'm you know i'm interested in different startups that are trying to attack those challenges in the prop tech market again keeping in mind that of course it's not one of the sectors that has been benefiting from covid but it's definitely one of the sectors that i'm quite interested in on the femtech side yeah i mean it's i think it's also really really interesting i mean we had i had on a 
Soraya Darabi. And it's also interesting what she said about it too, because that's also one of her focuses in or, or, or something that, 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 she, that she's interested in. And she was saying how, you know, if you look at like, for example, like Roe or, or R- Roman getting funded on the, on the men's health side, but it's interesting because there really hasn't been a lot of those types of companies on the female side. In some ways, it could be a reflection of of VC about how VC is mostly male oriented. Has COVID changed any of your theses thus far? I know that you said that you're still pretty bullish on prop tech. Has there been like any other changes around COVID? You know, I think it's just uh, COVID has created a lot of uncertainty. So, you know, in in terms of, I think the one is, I mentioned the digital shift. Uh, I think it accelerated that thesis that we had around digital shift. So um, that's definitely a big change uh, because I think, you know, the adoption that we've seen is something that's, that we've, we've been excited about. And that's definitely the impact of COVID. Um, you know, we did talk about PropTech and how we're still excited about it. Although if you look at the data, you know, people are still a bit cautious and we still need to see the after effects of COVID in terms of just what, what kind of impact it will have on the actual transaction volumes in, in the space going forward, both from just people's, you know, I'm sitting at home and I'm not going to go try to buy a new place, but to like how much income do people actually have for making such big sort of uh, purchases and decisions. So that's something to be seen. I think there are some also sectors that have been put a bit on hold, I would say, you know, travel and mobility. I think mobility is rebounding more now because we're starting to think about as countries are opening up a little bit. And obviously that has, that is going to have an impact on the space. Travel also, interestingly, of course, has been hugely impacted by COVID. But people are starting to also pivot a little bit more in in the travel space and think about creative ways of still offering kind of travel services that don't have to do with, you know, exotic destinations and traveling very far. So a lot of this sort of staycation type of value propositions. If people had a thesis about those sectors, that's definitely changed, I think, in the recent in the recent past. But I think the biggest shift is just the increase in uncertainty. And I know that some of the people you've spoken with on this podcast about about this as well, you know, their opinions have also changed. And I would say that I'm in the same camp. You know, if you asked me a few months ago, I would say, are these behaviors here to stay? Well, at some point I would have said yes, probably. But then as soon as the economy kind of opened up, you know, everyone ran to the restaurant and and decided to go out and see people. So clearly there's a lot of pent up demand. So (laughs) what does that world sort of look like going forward? Which behaviors are going to change and which ones are going to go is, I think, still still a question mark uh, for a lot of people. And, you know, most people don't, don't have a crystal ball. So we need to see how first of all, how long things last and, and, and what the kind of consumer response is going forward. What's one piece of advice that you have for B2C founders? First is, you know, you can't be everything for all people. Um, you have to find your customer and you have to make her super happy. Um, I think you need to obsess about your brand, uh, especially in B2C. Brand can be your biggest barrier to entry uh, because that's building trust and that's building customer love. And, and finally, you know, obsess about your unit economics. Um, it's, and when I say that, you know, I mean, it's so easy to burn money on marketing. Just don't be that person. Um, you know, it doesn't, just don't. <laughs> so that's, that's why, you know, a lot of people talk about it. But I think the dirty truth is that uh, so much of growth has been led by, you know, burning money on on marketing without thinking about unit economics. Um, It's okay to experiment, but do think about how you build sustainability into your business, especially in the current environment. I think it's really, really important. And there you have it. If you enjoyed this, I highly recommend checking out Sasha's full episode. 